Your name is, uh, please pronounce it for me. Ruri. Ruri. Okay. Now, is that is that like a given name, or did you choose that name, or is it just like a shortened name? <laughs> Originally, it's a nickname in my family only for my longer name. It's it's catchy. It's like Madonna and all that. It's great. Beyonce. Like it's good. Uh, they came later, you know. <laughs> it's it's not. <laughs> they copied you. I should take that back. Yeah. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> now, one thing that when I struck me when I started looking at your work and your entire life experiences, which are insane in a good way, you work with sort of whatever medium comes to you. You don't have like a set genre or, or set medium that you work in. Was that a conscious choice when you began to say, I'm not going to be just a painter or just a sculptor or whatever? Well, the trend when I was starting was that one should select a medium to work with. But my answer to that when my peers and teachers were trying to how do you say, focus my attention, technically speaking, I would say, why tie one hand behind the back when I need both of them? Because for me, it is a concept, which is in the leading role. And then I just look for a technique or medium to translate concept into material and form. That's why there are so many different techniques on my table. Well, okay. and But my big question within that then becomes, was that helpful or was that a hindrance sort of in building your career? Because in many ways, the art world wants to pigeonhole us into one thing and say, oh, they do this, and that's what they're known for. That's their style. But you chose intentionally to not do that. So did that was that helpful or did that sort of hurt some opportunities? It's hard to give a simple answer to that. You can be as long and as elaborate as you'd like, by the way. This is a long in conversation. So actually I remember being accused of being an impossible artist because I didn't stick to one style or one technique. And Yes, I was working with a gallery for a while, and I think they were not too happy with my choice of expression. <laughs> and, well, that ended as a marriage that doesn't last. <laughs> we had different opinions and separated before it became too poisonous. <laughs> That's always a very good in <laughs> close relationships. If one cannot solve it, then... It's time to say goodbye. Yes, before you get bitter. Yes. Yes. All right. So how do you make a living doing your art? I'm assuming that you are a full-time practicing artist and you don't really have any other sort of side jobs or anything. No, not really. I have done some teaching off and on, like guest teaching here and there. That means abroad as well as in Iceland. <laughs> And occasionally one gets a commission, not too often. Living in Iceland is wonderful. It's a very important place on the globe for me because I live here. <laughs> but diminishes the possibilities in some ways. However, you know, I'm a pretty old artist. So I remember when we had the fax machine. That was <laughs> such... Hey, I'm... 
I love fax machines. I wait. I okay. I'm close to your age. Mm-hmm. I mean, before fax machines, sending an image meant sending it by hard post, land post or airmail, and waiting for the reply for another week or two. So just sending one image, getting a comment might take up to a month. Yes, that sounds about right. A little bit complicated to plan exhibitions in spaces or catalogs that were going to be printed abroad. So, yeah, (laughs) today we do it at one o'clock and we get the reply at three o'clock. Boy, that's a long time if it took that long even. Well, it depends. (laughs) With WhatsApp, you could do it even faster now. Oh, yes, I know. But people are not always at their desk. Indeed. Now, so you said you were saying like Iceland's beautiful and all this. I mean, for all practical purposes, why stay in Iceland? Not, and I am in no way saying anything bad about Iceland, but I'm saying if you wanted to be, you know, a part of the arts world, there are more prominent places to be that might have been beneficial. Why did you choose not to go to any of those locations? Well, I studied in Holland. Because I continued my studies in Holland, and that was because at that time, Amsterdam was a very important cultural center for visual art. This is 76 to 78. (laughs) I know, that's when you had an art gallery there as well. Yes, that's true. We were running a gallery. That's true. We started a gallery to see art that we wanted to see from Actually, a lot from the eastern part of Europe, which was closed off more or less at that time. The Eastern Bloc, as it was called. Yeah, it's still called that. Yeah. (laughs) And we don't do that here anymore. (laughs) No, historically, it's still referred to that. Yeah. So that was quite interesting, actually. By the way, wasn't Andre Toad? Andre Toad. I have some work by him that I bought at Other Books and Soul, if you know about that place. Uh, No, I don't. Other Books and Soul was a very important gallery or institution in Amsterdam, run by Ulysses Carrion, who was a well-known conceptual artist and writer from Mexico, and Art van Barneveld. I'm sorry, I'm giggling because I'm like, okay, so you're from Iceland, you're in the Netherlands, you're buying books from a guy from Mexico in the Netherlands. Is this right? Oh, yes. Okay. And then I was, just to continue, I was doing a performance in the Apple when we Smiles was the director there, and I needed an assistant performer or second performer who didn't speak Netherlands and not Icelandic either, and not English, so it was a Brazilian guy. Okay. (laughs) You are a very worldly lady. I love it. (laughs) Well, you see, coming from an island, people would usually ask me when I was studying or living in Holland, so how is it coming from Iceland? It's in the middle of nowhere. And I would say, well, you see, for us who live in Iceland... It is the center of the universe. Is it? I mean, is that how you will like? Would you all draw maps with Iceland in the middle? Kind of like, is it really that to you? Well, what I mean is, living on an island, 
one is very much aware that across the sea there are other countries. I mean, middle of nowhere or center of the ocean where other continents uh, encircle that ocean. Yeah, you're the center of everywhere, not the middle of nowhere. Yes. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this awareness is somehow inbred that there are other countries everywhere. But if, for instance, brought up in Norway in the middle of the forests and there are 30-meter-high trees all around your little farm, you can't see the sky, really. How, and how should one get the notion that there are other countries behind those trees? Well, by traveling. No, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> well, but not everybody can afford that. Of course. So that's, yeah. No, seafaring was very important. <laughs> it's true, yeah, more so than where I grew up. <laughs> So, yeah. Well, but but again, so the question though, but like going back to my point of like Iceland, again, beautiful country. I, w- I will be visiting next year, but I haven't visited yet. And like you, know, you could go, you have, uh, you had lots of great opportunities when you, when you were starting out, you went to like Venice and did all kinds of different kinds of things, but yet you chose to stay in Iceland. And I'm fascinated with like, a lot of Icelandic artists seem to choose to stay in Iceland. So I'm like, what is the draw that keeps you there? Well, I think part of it is the family relations. We have strong family bonds here. For me, I have a son, and I wanted him to grow up in the environment here. We had actually been living for two years on a small island, really in the middle (laughs) Of a bay. An even smaller island in an island. Yes. But it's a, so I can show it to you on a map later. <laughs> I can link to it as well, yeah. If you have a, a magnifying glass. <laughs> okay. Well, why did you choose to do that? <laughs> well, my life is full of coincidences. Coincidences have brought more chances and opportunities into my life than all my planning together. <laughs> Agreed. Absolutely. Like 10 years ago, let's see, 10 years ago, I was living in Ohio and doing this shit job in the middle of nowhere. and was freezing cold. Since then, I have traveled to the Middle East, Sri Lanka, India, living in the Middle East, France, Germany. Hungary, like, I mean, all by chance, like none of it was a plan. I I never sat down and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to all these places. Like it, yeah, the best laid plans never seem to work. (laughs) Well, they probably beneficial in some ways because maybe those opportunities might not have come without them, without the planning. Some amount, I I generally say like what I do is I say some amount of planning in order to allow for some amount of absurdity, (laughs) but like you can't, you can't have too much absurdity because then it's just shit goes wrong (laughs) and you can't have too much planning because then you're a control freak. So like some amount of each nice amount of balance makes me happy. Yeah. Actually, existence is a lot about balance and harmony, but. There is, I mean, harmony is not stagnant situation. It's vibrant situation. It always needs work to be rebalanced. 
in life like i'm thinking relationships kind of things like you always have to put work into them you can't just fall in love and then be like okay we're in love we're never gonna have to work on it i think too many people have made that mistake (laughs) yeah sadly all right i want to go back into your cv because i've spoken with a number of other uh icelandic artists and uh, curators and a couple other people and the Living Art Museum has continually come up, and I saw that you were one of the co-founders of the Living Art Museum. Yeah. How did that happen? And then after that, I've got other questions. Well, where do you want to start? Okay, well, I mean, the, the, the first question is, is basically like, how do you make a museum? Actually, I think it was Niels Hafstein, the first director of the museum, who got the idea to found a museum. We had been exhibiting together a small group of artists like Olaf Laurusson, Torbe Husson, Helgi Thorkils Fridjonsson and myself and Niels. So I was still abroad and we had founded the Gallery Loa in Holland. So probably it was a reasonable idea to ask me to join the group that was founding the museum. Someone found it a reasonable idea. (laughs) And in Iceland, at that time, we were used to have to do the work ourselves if we wanted to see some changes. The changes didn't come. Someone else was not manufacturing the changes. It had to come from within, and we had to make the physical effort ourselves, the individuals. And so we were just used to that mentality. And so if we want a museum for contemporary art, because the National Gallery at that time wasn't collecting contemporary or not experimental and interesting art of the time and hadn't been doing it for 20 years, so there was a big gap already. And, well, if we wouldn't do anything, the gap would only get bigger as the years would pass. So, yeah, if we didn't want the contemporary art to get lost, we would have to start a museum. Very simple. That's how you do it. I love it how you're like, oh, we just decided to make a museum. Like, to me, a museum, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so a museum is the Smithsonian. So, like, like, oh, yeah, we just decided one day to make a museum. That seems insane. Well, it started as a collection, you could say. Okay. So it grew into a museum. It didn't, like, you didn't day one say, we're making a museum. Oh, yes, we did. Okay. But we didn't have a, a location for it yet. And it now has a very prominent place, from what I understand. Yeah, the exhibition lo- location, yes. Now, okay, but see, this is, okay, something else I wonder about with this. So this was um, back in the 70s that you helped to create this thing. How do you feel about it? Because, okay, you were sort of a, the, the, a mother figure. You, like, you built it, you birthed it, you created it. But now it's gone on to do other things. Like, do you like the direction that it's taken? Or are you sort of like, fuck, they went in this other direction that I don't agree with? <laughs> well, it's a little bit like, with one's own children, if you're talking about a mother figure, although I never thought of myself as the mother of the Living Art Museum, but it is artist-run, and the name, the title, we choose the name 
which is in Icelandic, it is the new art museum. So it means that it has to be new art anytime. At the present time, it is the art of today, but in 1978, it was the art of 1978, <laughs> you see. So it is kind of requesting that the museum develops in depth with time. I suppose many museum directions would not consider it a very important museum, but here in Iceland it is. And some important works are in that collection. So, of course, new people have different ideas, and it would be awful if I was still holding the reins. Awful for a museum, I think. It's very evolved of you. No, it's realistic. <laughs> Just well, I, I like I started this festival back in like 2002, and then I left the the organization, and the festival still goes on. And I've looked back at it, and I'm like, oh my god, that festival's horrible. What I would never allow that festival the way it runs now. Like it's just trash. But the, but people love it, you know. So like it just went in a different direction once I wasn't directing it. That I was just like embarrassed by. So then you start a news festival. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I probably will at some point, I'm sure, because I enjoy the festival situation. So, okay. So you've been lots of different things. Uh, so you've been a teacher. You've been on like advisory boards and committees out the wazoo. But there's one thing that I have not had a clear answer for, and I'm hoping you can give it to me. In Iceland and in lots of those Scandinavian regions, they have the differences between like associations and societies. And I think there's even a third thing. What is the difference between one versus the other? I have no idea. Oh, darn it. Nobody can give me good answers. <laughs> I think possibly it is a matter of translation into English. Depends on what dictionary is being used. I'm sure. The translations into English are older than Google Translate. All right. Okay. So let's get back to, you've done small works, big works, but you also do public works. Now, when you say public works, are they like public art pieces or are they just works in public, like sponsored by a museum or commissioned or whatever that happen to happen in public spaces or have you been doing public art? I've been doing public art as well. I love it. In the near future, I hope to be having a panel discussion about public art. So sort of what's your input on that, the nature of public art itself? You want it now, you mean? Sure. <laughs> okay. Well, well, well I, I've also, in my history, I also ran a public arts program, and I found that it, in some ways it was magnificent, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And in some ways, a lot of it ended up being sort of things done by committee, and so then it sort of rough, it, it lost some of the really great parts that it could have had if it were not done by committee. So, like, there's a balancing act on public art that, like, sometimes it can be absolutely magnificent, but sometimes almost too much conversation can ruin it? Mm. I think it is important that the artworks are in some conversation with environment around it, where it is located. But I once was on the committee of the 1% Fund in Iceland, or on the board of that fund, and the discussion was not 
as professional as I would have chosen at that time. And uh, usually it was like that uh, there was a building being uh, designed and already half built or finished. And then they would ask for artwork on a piece of wall or a piece of floor or something like that. And I said, I want to change the rules for the fund so that instead of an architect and the buyer selecting an artwork or artist, I want to hire an artist to do an artwork and then hire an architect to make the building around the artwork. Is that how it works now? No, unfortunately. I'm like, that is amazing. I'm all for that. Yeah, well, this was in 92 or something like that, and they didn't like my (laughs) concept. Yeah, so you weren't back on the committee the next year then? (laughs) No. No. But anyway, it became much more professional because there was also a very fine architect on the committee, the one who designed the Blue Lagoon, who has a great understanding of the balance between art and design. Well, I mean, I love the whole percent for the art idea. I wish that were just sort of like a worldwide standard that would be magnificent. I mean, 3%, of course, would be better, but at least 1%, you know, at least 1%. But I mean, the idea of basically involving the artists in the beginning, because I've run into this a number of times in the same kind of situations where basically the entire building was literally designed and built. And then they're like, oh shit, we need to decorate it. What can we find to fit this space? Yeah, and here is an exceptionally ugly space in <laughs> let's put an artwork there. <laughs> yes. And, and well and sadly that's the thing is like artists are brought in last. Like when we, it, it, we, it's not to say we have to be brought in like in the design phase, but at least earlier in the phase before it's done. Well, what I once said at a, one some symposium with architects they seem to be very reluctant to cooperate with artists. So I was asking, what is the problem? Because you have to work with plumbers, electricians. Carpenters. Yeah. Construct engineers, etc., etc. So what's the difference working together with an artist? Excellent question. Is tempted to think that some minority, and I'm inferior complex or something like that. Inferiority complex. In, in, yeah, sorry. My English is not so good. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. But that's what it is? That, that was the answer? No, I asked if that was the problem. But So what kind of answer did you get? Well, I was not thrown out, but... <laughs> you seem to get on the edge of being thrown out of a lot of things. <laughs> Do you like being the protagonist? No, it's... Uh, Unintentional. Okay. Well, I mean, it's funny because when I was thinking about you before we got on, I was thinking about the word sort of reactionary as like a thing that you seem to do a lot. And now that I'm getting to know you and hearing your stories, I'm like, you're a little bit reactionary. Like you, you like to push limits a little bit. Well, limits are made to be pushed. I mean, there's no reason to put up a limit if there is no opposition to it. I, I agree. I mean, limits generally are randomly accepted things by us culture. That doesn't mean they're right. Not always. <laughs> I mean, laws, okay, don't kill people. I agree. That's a limit. <laughs> I agree on that too. 
And that is a law that should be kept in all situations. Agreed. Yes. But I mean, but when it comes to like artistic engagement, like when it comes to like, you know, public art projects and and doing things in buildings and stuff, I just don't understand why they don't sort of include artists earlier um, other than some like they don't want us to interfere with the 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 architect's vision or what other kind of thing because like I ran into a couple times where I I did some RFPs and stuff for for submissions of these things and basically it was they were they came all the way down to the end and they basically just said oh well we've got a little bit of extra money and it wasn't even enough to cover the cost of production of whatever was necessary but they're like oh we have a little extra money let's do like a public outreach thing so that we can have a nice photo op and people can think the place is prettier because we bought some local art and i feel like oftentimes we end up being like a a, a secondary thought we're not it's not we're not in the conversation, we're an afterthought. Yeah, I think it is a very erratic method or attitude on behalf of designers and those who stand behind buildings. It's like preparing a dinner and then suddenly deciding <laughs> to bring something extra into it. Why not decide it already in the beginning or cooperating together on making a beautiful dinner? <laughs> instead of having sweet cake for a first course. I, I have a sweet tooth, so I'm all for that. But um, yeah. All right, let's get back, focus back towards arts and like your artist practice stuff. So when it comes to, because I've noticed, okay, so you've been on committees, you've been chairs, you've been on associations, you've been on uh, advisory boards, you've been everywhere, like sort of overseeing the practice of what's going on in many ways. What are some of the things that people seem to do wrong <laughs> frequently? I think in Iceland, we have a short history of visual art. That is actually not correct. But it's because we didn't have oil paintings in the Middle Ages. We didn't have many artists doing that. We were a colony of Denmark for 600 years, or more or less. So it was a quite poor nation here and society. But uh, people were doing design in wood, in textile, etc., and uh, embroidering and decorating the manuscripts or illustrating the manuscripts, etc. So we had a tradition, but not the classical European tradition. So we could say that the general public is not educated in visual art here. So there is a lack of understanding. And I'm afraid that some of our leaders lack the appreciation of culture. I love how politically correct you're being with this. You're like, some of our leaders. <laughs> I know you have very specific names. It's okay. Don't worry about it. No, 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 no. It's too general for that. But that's everywhere. I mean, I, I, I was in America. The, the the people with the power and the money and the influence, so whether it's developers or whether it's politicians or whatever, they have no interest in the arts whatsoever unless like, you're in a, an arts community, basically. So like Santa Fe, New Mexico or some very place known for its arts kind of thing. They don't care. They they And they have no knowledge of it, no insight into it and it, it's annoying 
Well, I feel sad for them because they don't know what they are missing. They don't know what a big gap there is in their uh, appreciation of culture and society. Well, there's also the part that a lot of these kinds of, because I'm thinking of this one particular politician that I knew very well, he loved live theater. So he was fine with using his political clout to fund live theater, but he would not fund anything else artistic. And so like a lot of times people end up getting that little niche thing of like, I understand this, so I'm fine with supporting this, but I don't understand everything else, so I'm not going to support any of it. Yeah, well, of course, you should not misunderstand me. There are politicians and leaders who do appreciate culture in Iceland also. Even in Iceland, you know. I didn't say that. You said that. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Because you were talking about Iceland in the middle of nowhere, so we are <laughs> even. You said that, not me. Again, you're right. <laughs> no, but... I lost the thread now. <laughs> yeah. So it's okay. So, I mean, but the the question was sort of like, what are the artists still doing, like not doing well? Like I'm thinking like really, really nuts and boltsy kinds of things. Are they not pushing their ideas well? Are they not writing good statements? Are they not sort of presenting themselves in professional manners? Like, you know, like f because you've been on the other side as the person reading requests and reading proposals and things like this, like what is it that a lot of people these days are still maybe not doing as well as they could? I think the notion of a bohemian artist is still alive somewhere. And people think that there is someone else going to take care of them. I've seen it in as you say, on the other side of the table, that the artists have an, are not realistic about what we have to do in order to survive or get into a better position in life. And I think partly it could be the education is not taking it seriously that artists have to survive if they are going to make art. It's like you just have to get become this great artist who is more or less only thinking about yourself and your career, and everybody else will love it. But that is not the reality, unfortunately. I would love to be in that situation. But I sometimes joke about it that if I had known how much organizational work it is to run oneself as an artist <laughs> and have a studio at communicating with curators overseas and etc etc I think I would just have gone into something else <laughs> because my idea going into an art college was I love the smell of oil paint. I'm going to be a painter. I'm paint whenever the spirit comes into my mind, the ideas come. Oh, it will be wonderful. But art has been anything but that. <laughs> well, actually, well, that leads to a, a, an interesting thing that I've, I've been observing this, but you've actually been doing this. So tell, help me out. I feel like it's become the speed of the world has increased so much that there's this expectation of like making more faster better you know because technologies have even advanced and stuff like this like so like 
in comparison to like when you started, which we'll call it 70, late 70s, to now, has how has the art world sort of changed? Because I feel like it's it's faster, it's more, it, in some ways it's more worldly, but in some ways it's more localized. So like, what kind of things have you noticed over the decades of like changes to the arts industry and the arts world? Well, I've become more business-like, as you say, or worldly. Artists, when I'm a young artist, we are very much cooperating, working together to obtain some goals or build something to make art easier for the arts community here or there in Scandinavia or Holland, you know, where I was living. But now in the 80s and 90s, late 80s, 90s, it became more competition than cooperation between the artists. Everybody was going to be the great master, the famous artist, the big ego, the young lion, etc. <laughs> and I think a very small percentage achieves their goals or dreams. It, is that a thing of just age? Because like when I was in my 20s and 30s, I was all about community, creating collectives, working together, having group exhibitions and events. And and now I'm in my late 40s and I'm sort of like, that's just too much work. No, I think the students, the new artists were competing among themselves instead of cooperating at that time. They thought they were going to be the great master. It's individual thought, so, in a way. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I'm talking about a pattern. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense, because I could think of the 80s and 90s as very sort of selfish, sort of like individual, sort of goal-oriented, because, of course, that was the time of, like, high sales and money and prestige and this kinds of stuff. But then, then, so then how has it continued to change over the years? And also the galleries have been, I see lesser or fewer galleries, I think, that are really loving the art and the artists. So what, more galleries that just see it as a business? Yeah, well, they'll say they love the artists and the art. Of course, they will say that. But look at how little chances they are taking with bringing new works into the field. As you said in the beginning, they want to have a style that is already accepted and is easily sold as they have to survive as a business unit. Luckily, there are always these grassroots galleries, young artists running galleries, and that is what keeps the art scene vibrant, I think. Indeed, yeah. Okay, now when it comes to you, like so in your own practice, because you've just been bitching about like how much business you have to do and all this kind of stuff. And I love that because that's my big complaint as well. So I agree 100%. But did you notice a a shift? So again, like you have a, a long, like I've got like 22 years or so of, of time period, but like over the again your career have you seen more of a shift because like one of my big pet peeves is this in the old days (laughs) the the 
galleries took on a lot of the responsibilities. So they would help with RFPs. They would help with writing artist statements. They would do all the sales. They would do, they would do a lot of that work. Whereas these days, a lot of that work has now been placed back into the hands of the artist where we are obligated to write our statements, do our proposals. You know, we have to do a lot more. And then of course, websites and social media and all the other crap that we have to do as well. So they, Am I right in that, that like it used to be that they took a lot of that responsibility away, but now it's been handed back to us? Or is that just my personal perception? <laughs> Am I totally wrong? I suppose it depends on the galleries. If a gallery is a high-end gallery, they have high-end artists, they will do the work for them because it's economical for them. I think so. But if it is a middle-class gallery, it's easier to have the artist doing as much as possible, I suppose. Yes, sadly, I'm not a high class artist, I guess. So I don't I don't deal with those people. So. <laughs> no, I have not long experience with galleries because possibly as you said in the beginning, I do not stick to a style <laughs> in material. So it's not my personal experience describing but what I hear from other artists. Okay. Well, how much time do you spend on like what we'll call like, quote unquote, the business of the arts versus art production? Sometimes it's 50-50. It depends. If, if you're talking about communication, organizing, and so I don't see it as business. I just see it as organizing. And I never really have sought contact with a gallery. I'm passive in that way. I just wait for to become a bohemian artist, you know? <laughs> oh, no, you, you are a bohemian artist. No, no. <laughs> you're not waiting. You are. It's great, though. I mean, you're kind of, in many ways, you're living the dream. You know, like you just, you make whatever you make, and if people love it, they'll come to you. That's amazing. Yeah, well, I'm not good at the other part. You know, it's just, it's just my Achilles heel, in a way. Yeah, well, like, do you write commission? Like, do you write proposals and RFPs, or do people come to you? Like, how does how do getting commission works create for you? It's either competitions or people come to me, but it's not very frequent actually. And competitions are sometimes something I would not call competition. Obviously, the outcome has been decided beforehand. I've seen that both in Iceland and abroad, where I've been invited to take part in commissions. And it's just an excuse to say we had a competition, but this is the result. Yeah. Here, we did. We publicly, legally did an open call competition. However, we're going to use our friend over here. Yeah, we like him. Yeah, yeah. I just had dinner at his house the other night, so we're just going to use him. Even though this other one was superior, we're just going to do our friend. It's more comfortable. It's it's sad that that kind of stuff happens. I mean, I, we always hope that merit wins out, but it's not true, sadly. You know, probably in many more fields than in visual art. <laughs> it's true. It's probably in most of the world because I've had times where I've been passed up for promotions and stuff because the person just didn't like me as much as they liked the other person, and that's it. Oh, really? Is that possible? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
has nothing to do with the quality of my work. It's just because they like them. Oh, yeah. And that happens all the time. Well, usually it is not necessarily because they like them, but because that person will do what they like. Correct. They will kowtow to their interests and, and like let them run over them, which I will not let them do. So, yes. I know. It's, it's my Achilles heel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. Wait, there was something I was going to ask you about. Oh, I saw the word feminism come up a number of times in some of your work. Uh, is that a thing in your work? No. Okay, forget it. Then we'll skip that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually just believe in equal rights. And the gender should have nothing to do with it at all. Agreed 100%. And an artist should not be categorized because of his or her gender. It's artwork which should be the category or categorizing factor. I totally agree. And it's one of those hard things because, of course, I understand that historically, white male had been predominant in museums and collections and things like this. But I'm saying right now, like I, I, when I walk into a gallery and I see two pieces of art and they're about the same price and all that, I don't go like, oh, that was made by a woman. It's worth less money. But yet it seems that that is what it is. Like they price women artists less than men. No idea why I don't get it. Because again, to me, merit should win out, not your gender. But something interesting about gender when I was a young artist, you know, I was going to a large exhibition, seeing an artwork. Oh, this is not interesting. And then I would ask myself, is it because it's a male artist who made it? Or is it because it was a female? Would I regard it differently if it was the opposite gender, the artist? And that was, for me, a very... I used it as a measuring tool in evaluating the quality of artworks. I still do it. It's an interesting way to approach it, yeah. I use it to double-check my evaluation. See, I would have to say my my equivalent to that would be age. I probably look at artists and think that they're, oh, they're stuck in the time period when they came out of school, like still working like that, or they're super young and they're like just trying crazy shit and they still haven't found their way yet. And so like, so I probably judge an artist's age in that way. And I'm like, am I judging them poorly because I made an assumption of their age or not? Well, I also do that. I have to actually agree. <laughs> But the other one is a second step. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, but it's fascinating. Well, because, okay, it all started for me because I taught at a university that was all women. So, like, all my students were women. And they kept always, in their artist statements, they would always say, I'm a female artist. Like, so they would always say that sort of proudly. And I always kept trying to tell them, you shouldn't be putting that at the forefront of who you are. It, it is who you are, but it's not like the reason why people should appreciate or for, you know, maybe not appreciate your work. The, your work should be just compared apples to apples, artwork to artwork, not female artist to male artist or whatever other 
genders that are out there these days. So like it, it shouldn't be the thing that defines you or your work, but it, it is an element of who you are. So like it just shouldn't be the first thing people hear about somebody. I agree with that. But as a young artist, I often was the only female artist in an exhibition among male artists. I mean, I'm not talking about solo exhibitions of mine. <laughs> to be honest, when I first saw your name, so before, and I saw your artwork, before I ever found a picture of you, I was uncertain of your gender. So, because I, I just saw Ruri and I'm like, Okay, Rudy. Like, didn't really think of like, is this person male or female? And it didn't really matter to me. And of course, until we started came to talk, I'm like, I just want to be able to recognize you. So I looked you up. But I mean, I, I thought that that was a really. It's very nice because like, it's just looking at your work on the merit of the work, and that, and you have a sort of a name to it. And so, like, gender was not important to me, but it is important to a lot of people, and that I find that very unfortunate. Well, I mean, for an artist who is working mainly with the feminism is important, but in general, it shouldn't be. But you are not the first person who doesn't see it immediately <laughs> from my name, <laughs> what my gender is. I have come to make outdoor art exhibition, and I came to the gallery that was the center of information that I said, Good morning. I'm just here to tell you I've arrived. I'm Ruri. Oh, we are waiting for your husband. When is he coming? I hope that was like 30 years ago. Yes, it was. Okay, good. I'm like, <laughs> please tell me that's not contemporary. Okay. All right. So, so we're trying to wrap this up here, but like one thing that I was wondering about, okay, you have this long history. So like you've been making a lot of work and in a lot of different mediums as well. What about, have you started to consider like what is termed sort of estate planning or sort of like your legacy that you're trying to build? So like, do you archive all your work? Do you have it in storage in like good containers and archival processes done and all this kind of stuff? Half and half, I would say. I don't have a museum archive of my works and not museum quality. Yet. Well, depends. <laughs> And I very early started to protect my works that are in storage because we had an accident with a big storage for the Sculpture Union when I was working there. There was a hot water pipe that broke. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> that was horrible. And I realized that my works that were in crates after exhibitions abroad they survived much better than those that were not. So since then, I'm more careful how I store my works. And this was in, in 87. So you've been careful for a while. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Because well, like, I'm starting to get older. People in my family are starting to die. So we're, we're, I've been thinking a lot about sort of like what happens after artists pass away like what you know and like so i'm trying to think like what should i be collecting or what should i be keeping for future scholars or you know it, it totally in my arrogant mind thinking that i'm somebody important so you are I mean, everyone is <laughs> it is totally me being egotistical and thinking that i'm somehow important enough to be collected by somebody and be studied by somebody but yeah 
Well, you know, the perfect society will be when everybody is an artist in one way or another. It would be a lovely society. Mm. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Like, we are incredibly privileged to not have to hunt for our own food and, you know, do our own, like, hand labor all day, every day. Like, to be able to have the time, space, distance, money, to be able to come up with creative ideas and be artistic is an incredibly luxurious and privileged place to be. Well, you had to work for it. Well, I think my parents had to work for it. <laughs> In my case, I had to work for it. I studied metal construction and was working, earning my living as a metal constructor for some time. Oh, yeah. And thousands of jobs I've had when I was a young artist, you know. Oh, yeah. I was a roadie for a while. I did all kinds of crazy jobs. I'm, I'm fully aware. Yeah. 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 We all pay our dues. <laughs> I think it is not some, we are privileged in that we managed to get from that to where we are today, but we had to earn it, I think. I agree. And it's very interesting because like, I keep thinking about all the like younger people, the next generation and how they think that they should be earning this sort of stardom and whatever, just because they're on Instagram or YouTube or whatever. And I'm, and and I and to me, it's that kind of stuff is earned over decades and an entire lifetime. It's not a thing that like if I had gotten fame and fortune in my youth, I would be dead probably from a cocaine overdose. <laughs> well, I think in fame at an early age, yeah, it puts the individual into a very risky situation because it takes a lot of experience to be able to, how do you say, survive everything that comes with recognition. Absolutely. It's very easy to stagnate, for instance. That is the most immediate threat, I think, for an artist. I'm always afraid, like, for artists who become, quote-unquote, like, famous or they sell a lot or whatever, that, like, suddenly they're, they've been pigeonholed into that thing, like, the, this person that does this oeuvre, this style, this medium, and people like it, so then you won't need to stay with it or else maybe people won't like what you make kind of stuff, like you were talking about with your relationship with your gallery kind of thing. But, like, it's a very – it's a double-edged sword. Like, it's lovely to get that – the accolades and the whatever the money or the opportunities of exhibitions but it it does often create a bit of a stagnation where they're expected to repeat those same ideas and techniques and mediums and all this i think it's very tempting for the galleries to push that idea through i understand their point but i can't respect it in my case <laughs> just to be clear are you currently represented by a gallery <laughs> No, I'm not. <laughs> but yeah, I'm a pretty comfortable person <laughs> to cooperate with if we have an understanding. <laughs> You've been lovely here, so I would enjoy to work with you if I was a gallerist. <laughs> no, I asked myself the question, why did I go through educating myself and going through the hardship of the first years or decades of being an artist, my family suffering from me focusing on art primarily, etc., etc. Did I do that to produce 
a certain product for someone else? Or did I do it because I want to work as an artist? I would say philosophy is the core of the work. So the answer was not a difficult one. If I was going to be a producer, I could have found easier products to produce than art. Well, and that's there's that's a whole different sort of form of art because, like you know, you think of people who produce things like uh, so, and I don't mean to speak down to, but like potters. Let's say I'm for some reason I'm thinking about potters. Like they produce tiles and they they produce beautiful tiles and they're stunning and they're artistic and they're creative, but they have to produce ten thousand of them. <laughs> and there is need for all the different levels of art. But I personally want to work on my own terms. Fair enough. All right, wrapping this up. So from your perspective, again, so like you've been on both sides to me, like you've been on these advisory boards and these committees, and you're a practicing artist in your own right. And for that matter, you've also been a teacher in many other ways. What kind of advice would you give to the next generation as far as how to do it well? to be an artist? Well, I might start answering an earlier question about the changes of the art scene. In the 90s, there was a lot of talk, and, and 80s as well, talk about the periphery. At that time, I was on the Scandinavian Art Committee. So there was talking about periphery within the Scandinavian countries or periphery in the international context. I think, as you mentioned earlier, the centralization is probably changing. This having Paris as a center of contemporary art, New York, etc., etc. It has been interesting to see how it moves from one place to another across the globe. But there is no periphery on a globe, <laughs> number one. <laughs> it's a circle. Yeah. So I think that all these little places are becoming more important in the future. Like little, how do you say, nodes of art here and there. This is a feeling I have that they are becoming stronger and kind of more linked into the general global network. So I hope this will be correct, but we need the centers as well. Yeah. Because it's a stimulus, that's a different kind of stimulus in the big centers. So for the young artists, I cannot give an advice. But what I would say for me has proven most important is to be true to myself and not to think what others are expecting, but what could I do that adds to what we already have. Or where is there a gap that needs to be stitched into, you know, like a sock with a hole in it? <laughs> well, I mean, that's an interesting point, which is like my father used to always give me this thing. He, he used to always say, like, don't do what everybody else does. Do the thing that nobody else is doing. Mm. Yeah. And so, like, I've taken that to heart. Yeah. Well, because it also goes back to our little conversation about like competition. So like there was the time period where everybody was being very competitive and there was this whole ethos of competitive nature. 
And it was like, well, if you don't do what everybody else is doing, you're not competing with them anymore. You just do your own thing. And that's that was the the way that I was sort of raised is not to be competitive if at all possible. The only quality of being competitive is competing with oneself in doing well. I always do as well as I can. If I'm having an idea or starting on something and I think after a while, this is not going to be a good work. I just throw it away. Really? Okay, now I want to know. When you're working on work, what's you, have you ever sat down and like done like a percentage thing? Like I, you know, how many of your works are completed to the point that you will present them to the world versus how many things are failures? 95%. No, <laughs> 90, I, I haven't I haven't calculated. 95% failures or 95%? No, no. Because I throw the others away before they become any material. Okay, fair enough. And I'm not much for sketching except when it's necessary. Because in my head, I've always been just, I have a three-dimensional 3D program up here. So I, I can see the things and uh, roll them around in my head. Okay, wait. So that's an issue. Do you, like for me, I will, when I start making a series of works, let's say, because I work in generally in some sort of a series, usually when I get done with one piece, I will then be able to, in my head, before I even start on the, the next piece, I can envision the whole final installation, the exhibition, the lighting, the color of the walls, like the whole thing. Do you think like that also? Like when, when you start an idea, you suddenly have the entire thing in your mind? Well, it's not always like that. But before I finish, I have it like that. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes I've had an idea that I couldn't find the solution, how to present it in material. So for 10 years, it was always somewhere in the back of my head. And then finally, there came this idea how to solve it and then i can start to build 3d model <laughs> in my head <laughs> okay your google internal google sketchup well sketchup is a rather simple one <laughs> okay fine autocad <laughs> i wish i had that one <laughs> too expensive is it really expensive oh yes i had no idea no i don't do three-dimensional work so yeah all right. Is there any last topics that you want to talk about that I didn't bring up or I didn't give you enough leeway to talk more about? My head is empty. No 3D or nothing. <laughs> All right. Well, then, this has been lovely. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me. I hope you are enjoying and learning from the stories, experiences, and advice of our guests as much as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe too. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. Audio editing is done by Jakub Cherne, and I am your host, Matthew Doles. For more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website, wisefoolpod.com. 
The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.